This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. to do weird stuff here so this year what i thought we would do and uh, you tell me what you think about this i thought we would do a home for the holidays series and the go ahead well that sounds good um i just wanted to say i feel like weird is the wrong word i feel like we are so joyful during the holiday season that we just want to Share the abundance. <laughs> and that's why our holiday season is abundant. Yeah, I would I would agree with that to some measure. I think I think the idea was I remember times when I would be and it's been different times over the years, but for whatever reason I would be in a position where I had this downtime during the holidays and I wanted to somehow create a little more content for people who might be in odd situations. That's how it sort of started for me. But you, I think you originally said something on let's do the 12 days of Christmas. And then I had looked at it and gone, okay, well, yeah, we can definitely do something like that. We did that the first year and then the second year. And now we've sort of made it a habit to do quite a few episodes at the Christmas season. Uh, this year's no different. Um, I, I, people really like it. So the result is that even though everybody doesn't have a ton of time for the holidays, like, our holiday little mini season, uh, it is a hit. Yeah, we, we get a, a lot of downloads. And the way that I've started sort of pursuing this is I actually plan this out you know, earlier in the year. And I make it where we can sit down and record a bunch of similar episodes. I've had a theme uh, last year's theme, I think the overall theme was fugitives, right? Like that's what we were. People who can, yeah, people who had escaped. Yep. Yep. So this year, with home for the holidays, uh, what we were actually going to be covering is a little different than that, and it's uh, it's different from what we do. I I got to a point this year. I covered a lot of serial killers, even though it may not feel like that in the feed. There are other serial killers that we've started recording on that won't show up till after the holidays. There are plans for other serial killers. You know, this is one of the first years that I've done a lot of um, communicating with different 
people who are in prison, like sending letters and, and setting up accounts. And that stuff's going to start coming out in 2024. Um, there's some other things that we have in the works that may or may not cross over with True Crime XS. And if, if everything goes well, we'll come back to all of that. But I thought being the holiday season, it's still gonna, there's still going to be murders in here. There's still crimes in here. But I thought that we would focus in on people who, for whatever reason, were being accused of a crime, convicted of a crime, put in prison, sometimes for very long periods of time, and then ultimately getting out. So they would be home for the holidays. Now, these take place at different times over the years. I took a specific interest in cases that you might not have heard of. And I did take interest in a few cases that you might have, uh, particularly some of the first episodes and the, the couple of the last episodes are going to be stuff that has been in the news. Like today, uh, there's a case that like some people are going to have heard of it. Uh, hopefully, I bring a little bit more to the table. Um, and the other thing that I'm going to do in addition to the home for the holidays exonerations cases is I thought that we would highlight a missing person every episode. So we're going to do that today. We're going to cover one exoneration and then we're going to talk about a missing person at the end of the episode. And most of those missing people either relate in space or time to what we're talking about. Some, some of the exonerations are older and we chose to just sort of say, okay, that happened in this location. Let's highlight a missing persons from that location. So that's what we're doing. So does that sound about right to you? I think so. Okay. So that that's that's what we're that's what we're aiming for here. And we're gonna kick it off. Uh, I'm not doing a lot of true crime news because of how we're recording this and because some of these ex- exonerations are very uh, dense to get through. Today's source uh, is the Los Angeles time. There's an August, 2019 article. Um, and then also there is a, uh, a university of Michigan. Uh, they have the national registry of exonerations and a lot of these people will be in there. So today's um, uh, exoneree is Samuel Bonner. So the way that they classify these, it's different depending on, like who it is and and what happened. This takes place in the state of California. Specifically, it takes place in Los Angeles County. This is a murder and robbery case. And the crime was reported in 1982. The sentence for this happened in 1983. It was life without parole. And the ethnicity of the person who was exonerated is black. He's a male. He was 20 years old when this happened. And contributing factors to this were perjury or false accusations and official misconduct. Now, that's rare because a lot of what I look for in exoneration cases, typically they're DNA related. And that's a specific contribution that I will highlight if DNA has come into play. It does not in this situation. On November 11th of 1982, 23-year-old Leonard Polk was a flight attendant who lived in Long Beach, California. He was found shot to death in his apartment. Around three weeks later, police arrested 20-year-old Samuel Bonner and 23-year-old Watson Allison. Both of them were charged with first-degree murder and armed robbery. Ultimately, both men were tried separately and convicted of murder, and in each case, the prosecution claimed that the defendant was a gunman. 
The jury in Bonner's case rejected that notion. Although the prosecution sought the death penalty for Bonner, he was sentenced to life in prison, while the jury in Allison's case convicted him of being the gunman, and he was sentenced to death. Okay. Right there. A lot of uh, differences going on, wouldn't you say? Yes. So if you go and read in the Los Angeles Times, uh, a lean uh, Chick Medallion wrote uh, an article about this that comes up August 23rd of 2019. It's a, it's an interesting article, and it starts off with a jailhouse informant's lies put him in prison for 37 years. Now he's free. As soon as Samuel Bonner entered the Long Beach courtroom with his wrist chained to his waist, the judge made a simple yet for Bonner unprecedented request. The judge asked the bailiff to remove his shackles. This is the moment, Bonner thought. This is it. It was the closest thing to freedom he had felt in 37 years. The hour or so that followed was just as remarkable for the man who always insisted he was innocent of murder. The hearing that day in July was spurred by the approval of California's new felony murder law, which retroactively limits who can be charged with murder to those accused of actually killing or intending to kill. I'm going to pause there for a second and talk about this. Um, felony murder doctrine has been a thing for me for a while, and you and I have had many conversations about it. For people who don't know, the rule of felony murder is a legal doctrine that in many jurisdictions over the years, it basically widens or broadens the crime of murder. So in some places, when someone is killed, regardless of the intent to kill, if they were in the process of committing a dangerous or enumerated crime, a felony in most jurisdictions, the offender and anyone associated with the offender in terms of accomplices or co-conspirators, I believe in some places it extends to accessories, they can all be found guilty of murder. And when this all started, it was first-degree murder. The concept of felony murder originates in the rule of transferred intent, which is a weird one. It's a legal doctrine that holds that when the intention to harm one individual inadvertently causes a second person to be hurt, that the, the perpetrator is still held responsible, even if they didn't mean to hurt that second person. And then to be held legally responsible, a court typically needs to demonstrate that the perpetrator had mens re or criminal intent. That is, they knew or they should have known that someone could be harmed by their actions and to some degree, they wanted that harm to occur. It gets a little sprawling in terms of the United States criminal justice system. Sometimes I almost agree with it, which is weird, but sometimes I think it's completely wrong. Well, it's supposed to be used as a deterrent, right? Uh, like, don't commit felonies, right? Correct. And I agree with sort of the thought behind it, but applying the rule across the board, I feel like has largely failed to accomplish its purpose. And a lot of times it seems like people end up being punished 
uh, way too severely for any role that they may have played, right? Yeah. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, I do agree with the principle of it. It is a, it's a loaded topic, right? Yeah, it is. And um, that's why I kind of uh, laughed when you asked, because I mean, for the most part, I agree with what it's trying to accomplish. I just, I don't think that it's necessarily been, I, I don't know that it does accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. And I feel like in not accomplishing it, it actually does a lot more harm than good sometimes. Yeah. It, it, and that's started to be recognized in some places, uh, exactly what you're saying that more harm than good can come of it. As of August of 2008, 46 States in the United States had a felony murder rule. Now under most of those States, I think maybe all of them, uh, felony murder was considered to be first degree murder. Now, in 24 of those states today, it is a capital offense. A capital offense means you can get the death penalty for it. So that's a big deal. When the government seeks to impose the death penalty on someone convicted of felony murder, the Eighth Amendment has been interpreted so as to impose additional limitations on the power of the state. For instance, the death penalty may not be imposed if the defendant is a minor participant and they did not actually kill or intend to kill. That's changed. That's the current interpretation of the Eighth Amendment. However, the death penalty can be imposed if the defendant is a major participant in the underlying felony and exhibits extreme indifference to human life. Now, the Eighth Amendment, for People who don't know in general terms, it protects against imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, or what's known as cruel and unusual punishments. It was adopted on December 15th of 1791, along with the rest of the United States Bill of Rights, which are the first part of the Constitution. Most states recognize the merger doctrine. Now, the merger doctrine means that a criminal assault cannot serve as the predicate felony for the felony murder rule. If there is a criminal assault where someone dies, you could be charged with manslaughter or involuntary manslaughter, but they can't go, well, you committed a felony assault on this person that was so serious they died. So therefore it's instant first degree murder. You know, otherwise there would be no involuntary manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter. Because it would all just go to felony murder. Correct. Yeah, no, that makes sense. To avoid the need for relying upon common law interpretations of what felony conduct merges with murder and what offenses do and do not qualify as felony murder, many U.S. states, local jurisdictions, and, and I guess federally, they explicitly list out what offenses qualify in a felony murder statute. Like, for instance, federal law says terrorism, kidnapping, carjacking, those count as felonies that can result in a felony murder charge if someone dies. If you look at the American Law Institute's model penal code, it it doesn't have a felony murder rule, but it allows the commission of a felony to raise a presumption of extreme indifference to the value of human life. The, the felony murder rule is effectively used as a rule of evidence. So putting it under that, you could include robbery, rape, 
forcible intercourse, arson, burglary, escape, those can all be predicate felonies upon which a charge of first degree murder under the felony murder rule could be obtained. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Uh, now, in in the state of Kentucky, the common law felony murder rule has been completely abolished. Now, New Jersey follows the model penal code, which means certain things apply. Michigan has abolished the common rule, and Hawaii has abolished the common rule. There are other areas where they are seeking to limit how the felony murder rule is used by statute. Uh, a recent example of this is Derek Chauvin, the police officer who was accused of murdering George Floyd, who was accused of murdering George Floyd and subsequently convicted, he was tried and convicted under the felony murder rule. Meaning if Derek Chauvin hadn't committed the underlying felony, George Floyd would not have died. There's been a lot of commentators over the years who think that the idea of transferred intent is wrong because the law is basically pretending that the person who intends one wrongful act also intends the consequences of another act, which is usually unforeseen. So that is a part, a a little piece of what's happening with Sam's case. So I paused from that and I'm going to come back over here. So this is the article from the Los Angeles times again, the reprieve for Bonner that day went far beyond California's new felony murder rule. Bonner and more than 1,600 others who sought relief, and at the time of this article in 2019, 10 of those convictions had been undone. Superior Court Judge Daniel J. Lowenthal, he declined to resentence him, and instead he ordered him released. He cited misconduct by a prosecutor who had used a shady jailhouse informant. Besides the informant's testimony, he said, there was little, if anything, linking Samuel Bonner to the crime at all. That the death penalty was sought against someone based on testimony that was known to be false is horrifying and shocks the conscience, according to the judge. The saga began on Veterans Day of 1982, when Leonard Polk was found inside his Long Beach apartment in a pool of blood, having been severely beaten with two bullets through the back of his head. Bonner and an acquaintance, Watson Allen, were charged with killing Polk during a robbery. That made both of them eligible for the death penalty if they were convicted. At Bonner's trial, the prosecutor at the time, Kurt Seifert, argued that Bonner was the gunman, despite a weak connection to the crime scene. An undercover officer testified that he saw Bonner and Allison driving around Bonner's 1964 Ford rumbling and smoking, and that they thought, that they looked suspicious. The officer began to tail them, and when the car was idling at an intersection, he observed a bicyclist leaning up against the car, talking with Allison. The officer then saw Allison and the bicyclist, Polk, walk into a nearby apartment. Later, a neighbor saw Allison making several trips in and out of the apartment, carrying property, including a TV set, and then driving off. No one saw Bonner go inside of Polk's apartment. Authorities did find an envelope in his car addressed to Allison with Polk's cross streets. A speaker found in Allison's home 11 days after the robbery was marked by Bonner's palm print. 
And a fuse found outside Polk's apartment building matched fuses that were found in Bonner's pocket. The most conclusive link to Bonner came from the testimony of a key witness, a prolific jailhouse informant who claimed Bonner confessed to him that he shot Polk. Before Bonner's trial, that informant, Michael Hayes, appeared in court on his own murder charge. As part of a deal with prosecutors, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to four years in state prison. The leniency was attributed to his cooperation in several more serious cases, according to court documents. By then, one defendant in another murder case had already accused him of lying. During a preliminary hearing, Hayes testified he saw the defendant shoot a man, then take his jewelry. You are lying, the defendant blurted out, according to a transcript of the 1983 proceeding. The judge tried to stop the defendant. The defendant said, he sits there and lie on me, just straight out lie on me like that. Why don't he tell the truth? Hayes took the stand a few months later in Bonner's trial, which involved just three days of testimony. Bonner's lawyer, a man named Ron Slick, who was known in legal circles as Dr. Death, because so many of his clients ended up on death row, did not call a single witness in his defense. Bonner was convicted of murder and robbery, but the jury concluded that he was not the shooter, so Seifert dropped the death penalty. At Allison's trial soon thereafter, Seifert presented a separate panel of jurors with a different theory, in which Allison was the gunman and Bonner had a relatively minor role as the wheelman who never even entered the apartment. The prosecutor never brought up the alleged confession by Bonner. Allison was convicted and sentenced to death. In a deposition decades later in Allison's habeas case, Seifert called his strategy, arguing at Allison's trial that Bonner never set foot in Polk's apartment, a boo-boo and the big oops, according to court documents. A detective deposed around the same time said based on the evidence, he and his partner didn't think that Bonner killed Polk. He couldn't remember if he formed that conclusion before or after Bonner's trial, or if he related to Cypher. Allison's death sentence was eventually overturned, and he was resentenced in 2012 to 25 years to life. He came up for parole again in January of 2020. 19 days after his verdict in 1983, Bonner wrote a letter to the judge saying he didn't get a fair trial. He wanted to tell his side of the story, he wrote, but Dr. Death didn't let him testify. Uh, Slick, according to this author, could not be reached for comment. Bonner continued his fight for decades. He lost his appeal and his habeas petitions, once because the paper was not filed on time. He said he was found unsuitable for parole several times because he wouldn't accept responsibility for the crime. That's something that you and I have pointed out time and time again. When people don't accept responsibility for a crime, it's almost impossible for them to get parole in a lot of jurisdictions. That's correct. Bonner says to LA Times, I express my empathy for the family. I can't take back something that I didn't do. The repeated rejection had left him numb, he said, but he never stopped believing that one day he'd be set free. In 2002, another case was overturned because Michael Hayes had lied about a jailhouse confession. As it turned out, Hayes had been trading information with authorities in Kentucky for years, but they cut him off because of repeated dishonesty. Even even then, 
Bonner's case has never been reopened. A spokeswoman for the district attorney's office said it had no record of receiving a conviction review request from Bonner and was not notified of the two habeas petitions he filed in Los Angeles County Superior Court in recent years. Both petitions were denied by Lowenthal. It wasn't until January, when the new felony murder law went into effect, that Bonner had a fresh chance to fight. The law says that murder charges can be filed only against people who actually kill or were a major participant with reckless indifference to human life. Bonner filed a petition seeking relief, and that triggered a hearing. Prosecutors opposed on constitutional grounds, as they have done in many other cases, and they argued in court papers that the new law improperly changes voter-approved crime-fighting initiatives, including a proposition that sets stricter penalties for murder, and another that expanded the definition of first-degree murder. They also argued that because it's retroactive, the law improperly reopens judgments that were final. Some judges across the state have agreed, others have not. Five people have been released, one was resentenced, and four others are awaiting resentencing, said the district attorney's office. Nearly 650 petitions had been denied. A dozen or so of Bonner's relatives showed up to his hearing last month in Long Beach, anxiously hoping for good news. His Girlfriend said she noticed a judge looked over and smiled at them, which she thought was a positive sign. She took a deep breath. We're really hoping, said Bonner's sister. The judge started the hearing by saying he was going to do more than just address the constitutionality of the new law, and instead he ran through the legal history of Bonner's case. Lowenthal said that other than Hayes' testimony, there was scant evidence that Bonner was involved in the crime at all. And Hayes' lie, he said, began as soon as he took the stand starting with his name. His name is Charles Jones, Lowenthal said. Everything thereafter appears to have been a lie as well. Lowenthal then recounted the inconsistencies. Hayes testified that Bonner said he shot Polk with a 357 Magnum, but Polk was shot with a 22 caliber gun. Hayes testified that Bonner told him he stole money, but the evidence shows that there was no money taken. Hayes testified that Bonner told him he woke Polk up and shot him, but the evidence shows Allison and Polk had just entered the apartment. Hayes testified that Bonner told him he entered Polk's home alone, but Allison's fingerprints were found inside. Hayes testified that Bonner told him he'd shot Polk once, but Polk had been shot twice. Cypher, the original prosecutor, would admit decades later in a deposition that when he heard Hayes describe the gun as a 357 Magnum, he knew that the informant was lying. Cypher is now retired and could not be reached for comment on this article. Lowenthal said that Cypher's presentation of inconsistent theories at the two trials with new evidence violated due process. It's axiomatic that a prosecutor's function is not merely to seek convictions, but also to honor the truth. But here, that did not happen. The district attorney's office said there was no record that Cypher, whose deposition came eight years after he retired, communicated his concerns to a supervisor. His deposition, conducted in Allison's federal case in which the district attorney's office wasn't a party, did not trigger a, a review of Bonner's case. The prosecutor who appeared in court last month urged Lowenthal to give her office more time to evaluate the merits of Bonner's petition, setting off a fiery exchange. You are considering releasing a convicted murderer, said Deputy District Attorney Evelis DeGarmo, who did not try the case and was standing in for a colleague. Convicted because of prosecutorial misconduct, Lowenthal replied. 
DeGarmo said she was not in a position to respond. If that has happened, we will be the first to concede as we have in the past. Justice is important to us, Your Honor, as we've indicated. Apparently not in this case, Lowenthal quipped. DeGarmo said she had come to court that day only prepared to address the constitutional argument. You have ambushed us, Your Honor, by setting it for one motion and hearing an entirely different motion when we have no documentation about it. Ultimately, Lowenthal declined to re-sentence Bonner for the underlying robbery charge, citing gross prosecutorial misconduct. Judges who have vacated felony murder convictions in other cases have re-sentenced defendants for whatever the underlying offense led to the killing, whether it be a robbery, assault, or other crime. In one recent case, a 25 years to life sentence for murder was reduced to four years for the remaining assault with a firearm charge. Instead, Lowenthal dismissed both the murder and the robbery charges. He urged the district attorney's office to evaluate whether any other convictions were procured in the same unscrupulous manner. DeGarmo objected. Don't interrupt me, the judge said. That's very offensive, she said. Don't interrupt me or you're going to be removed from this court, he said. A spokeswoman with the district attorney's office said allegations of prosecutorial misconduct are taken extremely are taken extremely seriously, no matter how old the case is. She noted that the case is now reviewing Bonner's case and other cases involving the same jailhouse informant. Lowenthal ordered Bonner released from custody. Bonner, who turned 57 this month, showed little emotion at the time. Behind him, his relatives cheered and applauded. Some wept. They all smiled. His sister and his girlfriend hugged each other tightly. Thank you, Jesus, someone said. Outside the courtroom, a niece FaceTimed one of Bonner's sons. Your daddy's coming home, she told him. Bonner was released from L.A. County Jail, where he'd been held while waiting, awaiting his court appearances on July 11th. He spent that day with his sisters in Long Beach, meeting nieces and nephews he never got to know. He visited his kids, including a daughter who was born just a month before he was locked up. She grew up speaking with him regularly over the phone and in letters, visiting when she could, so having him home was easy. Tamika Bonner, who turns 37 in October of 2019, said, We never lost touch. He's a really good supporter mentally and spiritually. He just wasn't around physically. Bonner is now continuing the schooling he started in prison. He's enrolled in culinary courses and hopes to one day open a restaurant. He's also interested in a trucking career because it'll allow him to travel and be outdoors and see a lot of things he wasn't able to see. Whatever he does, said Tamika, I'm behind him 100%. Bonner and his mom chat at least twice a day. Once to say good morning, again to say good night, and sometimes they just sit on the phone, not even exchanging words because they can't. I don't have to wake up to the control of somebody else, said Bonner. I have control of my life now, and that's a good thing. So what do you think of this case? I think that it is an example of one of the most terrible things that can occur in our system, uh, our justice system. And the reason I say that is because, uh, like, nothing changed. Like, you opened uh, this story with, like, this isn't a case where, like, DNA evidence was revealed, right? Right. Yeah. Every single thing about this case was exactly the same on the day that he was released as it was the day that he was put in jail, except somebody said, hey, that key witness, the only person who tied Mr. Bonner to the crime, he lied. And here's how he lied. 
and it directly contradicts the facts of the case. And like this guy was factually innocent and it is actually a bigger atrocity than somebody who was put away based on or I'm sorry, I guess they would be being exonerated for newly found DNA evidence, right? Right. Because at least in the, a lot of times in those situations, we don't necessarily get all the information that led to their conviction without digging further. But like in this particular case, a jailhouse snitch was the only reason he went to jail and the prosecution knew it at the time they allowed him to testify. Now... I saw where uh, Bonner's attorney at trial, and so this would have been 1983, uh, Ron Slick was his (laughs) name. Yeah. And he was actually known as Dr. Death because so many of his clients, which the number is eight, were sentenced to death. You know, it was fortunate that Bonner wasn't uh, sentenced to death, right? But... That's a small, small, small victory. He was in jail for 36 years. Yeah, 36 years. It, it, it's it's an interesting story beyond like what I just said in this little article here. There's a lot that was wrong with this case, like from the jump, let alone the, like the, the problems with the informant. There were so many problems with this case. And when I was reading about it, I, I kind of wanted to kick things off with a case that had like some kind of a happy ending to it. And it was hard to find it because if you read through, like if you go back, so that was from the LA times writing about it. And if you read through uh, the Michigan setup, they sort of explained some of this, but that judge in 2000, Lowenthal, judge Lowenthal in 2019 kicking this, that's really what like brought all this to a head. And it looked like the district attorney were pretty set on, they were going to like, run this case back through and retry it. Well, they wanted they wanted the judge to resentence him on the, on the lesser charge, right? And the judge refused because right. um his representation at this time uh when it w- was because the law changed, right? And yeah. so they got like a fresh perspective on it and the the um attorney took the opportunity to point out all the problems that were present in the case, right? Yeah, I, it's this is a weird one for me because okay, so the jailhouse informant, the Charles Jones Hayes guy, like he's bad. But I, I will say this: there, you know, there's a lot of people involved in this case. The guy that's following their car is a it's a Long Beach officer named Edward Davenport. He saw the car. He followed it to Polk's apartment. So while they're there, okay, this is what he says. Police officer Edward Davenport said Watson and Allison got out of the car talking to who he believed was Polk at the intersection of 10th Street and Orizaba Avenue. So that's about half a block away, give or take. He says when Allison gets out of the car, Bonner drives away and he sees Watson and Allison and the victim, Leonard Polk, go into Polk's apartment. Meanwhile, two neighbors, a guy named Ray Johnson and a guy named Frank Aguaya, they return to the apartment building. 
And Johnson testified that he, after he went into his apartment, he looked out the front window. He saw Watson Allison come out of Polk's apartment with a television, which he put into Polk's car. Johnson said he then saw Allison go back and forth at least three more trips. And he was carrying Polk's stereo speakers and he came out with a large duffel bag. Davenport said he saw Watson Allison carrying the duffel bag and then it was full. So they all testify that they see Watson Allison drive away in Polk's car and that Bonner is nowhere to be seen. All of the, so this is a cop and two people who live there. Now, Johnson and Aguaya, so Ray Johnson and Frank Aguaya, the reason they're important is because when they see Allison drive off, what do you think they do? Go to check on their uh, neighbor? Yep. They go to check on Leonard Polk, and they discover his body. So the police get called, and for some reason, they immediately start looking for Bonner's 1964 Gray Ford. Not Polk's car, Bonner's car. But he had been seen by a police officer driving away. In the police officer's own report, he describes it as at least 30 minutes before the crime happened. Right. And that's really confusing to me. And obviously, we don't have like the transcript of the trial, right? We don't know exactly what happened. But something got lost there, right? Yeah, something got lost in that translation. Because to have a police officer testify to what the facts appear to have been, which were that um, Bonner dropped uh, Allison off and drove away, right? Yeah. Uh, if a police officer testified to that, why would a jury believe? The, the interesting thing was, uh, so the jailhouse snitch, who he used one name, but it wasn't even his real name, Um you know, the jury found Bonner guilty, but they refused the testimony from the jailhouse snitch that he was the gunman. Right. Well, so what did they believe? Uh, well, I, I am I am not sure how they went about it. I think the idea is that Alice, as far as like their mindset, I and like if I, if you look at the documents, I think the uh, the way that you get between the two, what's being said in court and how the jury votes, I think it's presented like they're in cahoots. And so later that night, Bonner's car is found parked down the street from Allison's home. I read that he lived near there. I don't know how true that is. But Bonner was searched. His car was searched. And his residence was searched. This is the same night the crime happened. So they put a bolo out. They find his car. They search him. They search his person. They search where he lived. There's nothing found that links him there. The one thing that like they collect from his car that's interesting is an envelope that's addressed to Allison, to Watson Allison, on the passenger side floorboard of Bonner's car. So like if the, he dropped it when he got out. Right. It has a note on the back written in pen that said 10th and Orzaba, which is where Polk lived roughly. Right. But he, he meets up with Polk and walks into the apartment with him. 
And and a police officer sees him do it as well as Polk's neighbors. Right. And the way I I understand uh like how I understand that the prosecutor basically said like that was a ploy and like Bonner had like surreptitiously entered like a different way, right? To explain away him driving off, right? Right. I don't know exactly what was said or whatever, but it's well, depending it's, on which trial you're at, you'd hear two different things. <laughs> okay, right. And so to me, that you know, I wondered like, I feel like uh, Watson Allison could have said like, well, I guess if he says like he wasn't involved, if he were to say Bonner wasn't involved, he'd have to say how he knew that Bonner wasn't involved, right? Correct. And so that doesn't work. But to me, uh, this is this is absolutely shameful. Like it, it's so so bad. To me, it seems so obvious, right? Especially with that police officer's testimony. And the other thing is, the evidence against uh, Watson Allison was substantial, right? Yeah. So okay. So the night that they search Bonner's place and they find the envelope, that's when they go and find Allison. Which so Davenport is able to identify Allison. They search this garage that Allison is renting, and they find pretty much everything that wasn't in Polk's apartment that was supposed to be is in Allison's garage. Except they don't find the television he walked out with, and they don't find the duffel bag. They find the items from that they believe were in the duffel bag, but they don't find the duffel bag itself. And for some reason, they then arrest Bonner and Allison. But the police testified that they found Allison's fingerprints in Polk's apartment. So he it's going to be hard for him to, like, deny that he was there. But there's no prints there that link back to Bonner. They find Bonner's palm print on one of the speakers, uh, the amplifier for one of the speakers in Allison's, either in his house or in his garage. And that, that speaker came from Polk's apartment. However... The, the defense pointed out at trial that between the time the crime occurs and the time they discover the amplifier, 11 days have passed. And he just touched it while it was there. Exactly. And Bonner had definitely been to Allison's home. So if it's in his house and not in the garage, then, you know, Bonner probably touched it in passing. Now, Angela Hunter, she's uh, Leonard Pope's cousin. And lived with him at the time. She was the one who identified the stolen items that had been recovered. And she testified that a crate containing about a hundred record albums had been moved from against the wall to the middle of the floor in the living room, like moved out so they could get to other things. The, the Long Beach police said that that crate was so heavy that it would have taken at least two people to move it. So that's like a, kind of an idea that maybe there was someone else there. But like you said, the theory was that Bonner like snuck back over there after driving off. And ultimately the, the jury doesn't believe that he's the gunman, but they, they think he's involved as an accessory or like a co-conspirator. So they convict him. Do you think that that was based solely on the thing having to have two people to move it? I think it was based on that and Michael Hayes. Michael Hayes saying but that he Bonner said he shot had, him though, and they didn't uh, believe that. I 
Yeah, I think so. I think Michael Hayes puts Bonner there. The jury basically thinks to themselves, okay, well, he's there because maybe he's over bragging to this guy or puffing himself up for some reason. So he's admitted to being there. We don't think he shot him, but we think he was there. So we're going to like, we're going to convict him, but we're going to tell him we don't think he's the gunman. Well, that's what gets him life without parole. Correct. As opposed to being sentenced to death, right? Right. And this is all happening in 83. We got to remember 84 when Allison goes on trial, they start flipping this story. Right. They actually, the prosecution blamed both defendants. Right. And so what, a couple of things come up there. You're right. A couple of things come up though. They switched that Allison is the gunman. And in that trial, other things changed too. Polk's cousin, Angela Hunter, she says during Allison's trial, it's like, like I either the defense took it further, or the prosecution took it further, and she says that the crate thing was misunderstood. Like she says, the crate was moved to the middle of the room, and then the like it was like the albums were swept off of a shelf into it. Like they moved the the albums into the crate, like they were going to leave with them. And there was a Long Beach police officer there named William, uh, William Collette. He testified that one of the shoe prints found next to the fuses in front of Polk's apartment was pretty close to the pattern of the shoes worn by Allison. And he mentioned that Bonner's shoes had been excluded as being the source. Michael Hayes is not called back to testify again. During the closing argument of Allison's trial, the prosecutor, Cypher, he says... The evidence points to Allison as the one going in and all the evidence that's reasonable and believable that you will look at shows Bonner drove the Ford all the time and he was not the inside man. Seifert also argued that the neighbor saw the defendant going in and out taking the stolen property. They didn't see the other guy at all except driving the Ford, which the evidence showed that, you know, Sam Bonner owned it. The only evidence of anyone present in the in the apartment was the fingerprint of Mr. Allison. So he told the jury that the positioning of Bonner's palm print on the amplifier precluded it from having been placed while the amplifier was inside Polk's apartment. He's basically saying what you said that Bonner just casually put his hand on this days later. And that's the same prosecutor that earlier prosecuted Bonner for the crime. Yeah, it's ciphered in both instances. And basically what he ran into. Now, I know that the judge goes with prosecutorial misconduct. Ultimately, I'm just going to side with Judge Lowenthal on this, but I'm going to say this about it. I think Cypher was just met with a defense on a case he had put out of his mind in terms of the Bonner side of it. And all he was doing here was prosecute. Like he, there is there misconduct? Yeah, because when you're prosecuting two cases like this, you should know that like the evidence is different, and if you present it as different, that like you probably are in trouble. So the defense being able to look at his previous trial gives them a heads up. If you flip flop this and Bonner goes second and Allison goes first, you probably have you know the opposite result. Right. If Allison goes first and Bonner goes second? Actually, actually, I mean, yeah, maybe. Except to me that the 
evidence remains against uh, Watson, Allison, right? As far as, I, I wasn't sure exactly what you meant by flip-flop, but like, I don't feel like if the trials were reversed that Allison would now be get out of jail. Well, you, you have other, you, you're right. You have other problems. I don't, I don't think Allison's out yet, but I do think he's eligible for parole. Bonner's out. Bonner's, Bonner got a payout this summer. Correct. But like Bonner is factually innocent. And I feel like the case made against Watson, Allison was solid. Um, I don't feel like there's any doubt that he was responsible for what occurred. This brought up an interesting point to me uh, that I haven't had a whole lot of information on, but um, because of the testimony of Michael Hayes, uh, which that's his uh, pseudonym, being partially believed, right? Uh, that makes me wonder how often stuff like that happens. Because, you know, in a trial, the prosecution puts on the case, the defense raises the defense for their defendant, and the jury gets to absorb all that, and they decide the credibility they're going to give to the information, right? Right. And so I, I'm always curious to know how a jury interprets a case, especially if I've watched the whole case. And so I find it intriguing that they were like, well, we don't believe that he was the gunman. He was probably, and I think you're probably right about that. Like he was just bragging. Right. Yeah. And I wonder why that didn't to them. Like, I guess they were thinking he was actually told that. Right. Witness was actually told that by Bonner. He it was Bonner yes. that was bragging, and so it really doesn't raise the issue of like how, why would they partially believe him, right? Yeah, I don't. I mean, you have there's trouble with, and Andrew Stein did a pretty good job in his petition. That's the attorney for Sam Bonner in this last stretch of this that gets him out. He he does a really good job of sort of unraveling Michael Hayes, Charlie Jones, ever how you want to look at him. He does a good job of getting rid of that. And without him, I think Bonner's still in jail. Because I, I think I think Andrew Stein's petition is what gets Bonner out of it. And I think, personally, and I'm, I'm going to ask you what you think, but I think that Bonner was actually not involved at all. 100% he was not involved. And, and I'm going to talk about that with some of these exonerations. Because sometimes when people are exonerated, it's on technicalities. Uh, sometimes they could still be an accessory to something. Most of the cases I've tried to pick here, I, you know, I have some beliefs in, in, in what the result was. And I think that Sam Bonner was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong dude who committed a crime. And it, this one is a good one to kick things off with. And I think it's interesting because the person who actually did it is also convicted around the same time, a little bit later, but he's, you know, it's someone he knew. And I, I know. And to me, you said he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I feel like he was like slightly like because he dropped him off, you know, he's seen at the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. Or he's like he's at a place just slightly before the wrong time and it gets lost in this crazy trial testimony that happens um, because this shouldn't have happened. I do believe hundred percent. He's, he's innocent of the crime. I don't feel like he had anything to do with any of it. And 
Um, I can only imagine, you know, the thoughts he must have had over those 36 years about, like, why on earth was I hanging out with that guy, right? Yeah. Or whatever, whatever kind of, like, you know, things he could have done differently to not be in prison, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I And, well, one of among those things is not have Ron Slick as an attorney. Um, you know, Ron Slick has other people that I considered putting on. He has other people who are exonerated death row, too. Well, I know, and that's always concerning. Um, I feel like... He's almost uh, his own podcast series. Well, I was just going to say, like, I I don't really get into this very often because I, I don't usually have the opportunity to kind of see this sort of information altogether as far as, like, this dude has eight clients that he defended in a capital case and eight I don't know how many total he defended but of the capital cases he's defended eight of his clients have been sentenced to death I know it's a lot and so to me and I'm just kind of throwing that out there I feel like in the event you're a capital defense attorney right and you have eight clients that have been sentenced to death. I feel like maybe you shouldn't be a capital defense attorney. Uh, depends. Man, this is going to sound terrible, but I have to see the ratio. Like, did he get 50 off? I mean, I don't know that that is. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with. If he wins 50 capital cases and loses eight. I don't know. I feel like at this point in time, which of course this was in the eighties, right? Which is way, it's a completely different time as far as that goes. I don't know about those other clients. I don't know like when he had them. And obviously he got, uh, Bonner was not sentenced to death, right? Correct. And so I, I don't know. I just feel like eight is a lot. And I personally would think to myself, I'm not very good at this. Right. I, because you're, you ultimately, uh, if you're in a capital case defense position, you're trying to get life in prison, basically, right? Yes. Um, and so, I, I don't know. Maybe you are right. Maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Like I said, it's kind of hard. Like, you don't typically see how many clients uh, any particular capital defense attorney has had sentenced to death just from, like, one case of an exoneration from somebody who wasn't even sentenced to death, but they actually called this attorney Dr. Death. That, that's what the anecdotal evidence points to at this point. I, I have a list of some of his other clients and I've started kind of going down that rabbit hole. It's not really for this episode, but I agree with you. Like Maybe I, we can come up with that ratio and decide what we think. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. I thought he might come up again later because there, there are several more, serious cases that are his uh that a couple of them are just straight out exonerations at least one of them is a death row conviction that eventually gets overturned uh and it's all in the same time period but i thought we would look at him at some point but i i just thought sam bonner was a good way to kick this off uh did you have a lot more about this case i don't have anything else the last thing i had was so in may of 2020 uh this is according to maurice uh, possley who was writing this for uh University of Michigan's National Registry of Exonerations. And some of this information has come from him and some has come from the earlier source at the Los Angeles Times. In May of 2020, Bonner gets awarded $1,873,620 in compensation from the state of California. 
And in 2022, he files a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Long Beach and Los Angeles County. And that's seeking comp- compensation for the wrongful conviction, which is that's a little different. Not everybody gets that one. Uh, they end up settling. They settled this year in August of 2023. The Los Angeles County Claims Board agreed to settle that lawsuit for $3 million. Right. And so the wrongful conviction, I would say that a judge declaring prosecutorial misconduct during granting the... Uh, how do you say that? The release. He granted the release instead of a resentencing. He granted a release. Right. And he, he does. And, you know, I would say that that is a, a great indication of a situation where there's been a wrongful conviction. Right. Absolutely. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, a wrongful conviction doesn't necessarily stand because of other things that occurred that made it like a bad conviction, but like there wasn't anything wrongful really about yeah, that so, process. Yeah. So he got about $131,000 a year, give or take, for his 37 years that he's been locked up. And hopefully to make up a little bit for all the things he could never get back. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, whatever. At least he got something. Uh, 36 years is a really long time. It is. It's crazy. And we do have uh, the missing person that we're covering today. We have one. This is an interesting one. I've never heard, like, he had never come up in any of of my my hunting or my searches. Had you ever heard of this guy before? I don't think so. He goes missing December 25th, 1983. Uh, he is in NamUs as MP12014. His name is Mark Raymond Keishley, K-E-C-H-E-L-Y. Uh, again, December 25th, 1983, so Christmas Day. He was 25 years old, and he was 5 feet 10 inches tall. He was said to be around 200 pounds. Did not see... Uh, a lot of information about his clothing, but I saw that he has brown hair with a dark colored beard and blue eyes. Uh, he had scars on his left knee and scars on both wrists. I've read a couple of little like blurbs about him basically saying that, you know, uh, there may have been some mental health concerns that went along with this. Uh, Namus has a, a, a photograph of him. It's uh, just one photo. It looks to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here. It looks to me like that's a maybe a high school senior. That's picture. like a senior picture. Yeah. Okay. So he's in like a, a blue tux. He's got longer hair, and I believe it takes place five or six years ahead of him going missing on Christmas or being last heard from uh, Christmas. He was last known to be in Mill Valley, California, uh, which is uh, Marin County. So I wanted to touch on him. Had, had, have you seen anything else about him other than what? Yeah, um, I saw that. So he was last seen alive on uh, Christmas Day of 1983, and he was hitchhiking in Sausalito. There's some brief indications that the scars on his wrist were actually from a previous suicide attempt and that he had made suicidal statements about jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and that he had previously also attempted suicide by overdose. He was depressed, homeless, and told his friends that he didn't want to live any longer. Is that from Uncovered? 
or is not it? being it's missingin.org. Okay. So yeah, it's from missingin.org and that is really uh the only source of information I came upon. Now I I thought for a second um I was gonna share and then of course um I actually found uh I believe a situation where um I, I may have found him. And uh, so this is a body that was recovered a couple years later. And uh, it was a five foot 10 inch male Caucasian. He weighed 160 pounds. Um, and the, the unidentified body was uh, in possession of several paperback books, three pairs of eyeglasses, a foam rubber mat, pliers, scissors, a portable radio, micro tape recorder, uh, three shirts, a vest, coat, trousers, undershort, socks, a bag of clothes, which I guess that clothing was in that bag. Um, and then he was also wearing shoes. But um, he, this guy is about the same size, right? Okay. The most important part of that was that when I looked up this particular area and and people found, let's see, around the same time, the people that were missing, there was only seven of them. And uh, most of them, there was a couple of, there was a couple of people who were missing in their vehicles, right? And so more than likely they are in water somewhere. Um, and then there was actually a, uh, an escapee, uh, listed there, but so for the most part, like from a local prison. Yeah, um, for the most part, uh, my point is like I was able to categorize all of them, right? As far as like ruling them out as being this body. That makes sense to me. I didn't look that deep into the unidentified parts there. Um, I was just going with you know, kind of pointing out one missing person's case. You went, you went further than I did, which is cool. Well, no, I, I just wanted to point out, like, so my point is like, we bring up this guy, he went missing on Christmas of 1983. And, um, I found, you know, an unidentified and, and the body, they don't have any exclusions and neither one of them do, but it, it's interesting because if, I had pulled up all the information and it looked like there were several that could possibly match it. I wouldn't have said anything about it. Right. Okay. It's just because there were a total of seven that met the criteria I put in the seven missing people. Right. And then going one by one, including Mark, right. It, he really is the only one that makes sense. That doesn't mean it's necessarily him. It just means that it seems very coincidental, right? Yeah. Yeah. We get into this all the time where we're, you know, if, if something is odd jurisdictionally, it can throw everything off. But sometimes you can make matches. Uh, I think 83, do you think they had DNA for him? I don't know if it indicated. It I, they don't. Ha- I'm sure they don't have DNA for him. Because very little information about him. I, I don't know what was going on in his life, but he was really unhappy. Um, it sounds like, right? A little um, bit. Yeah, if you're leaving hitchhiking on Christmas Day, yeah. 
Well, plus, like, he was telling people he just, like, didn't want to be alive anymore. And I don't see anything from, like, his family or anything. Looking for him, you mean? Well, right, because... You know, I have no idea what was happening. There's just not a whole lot of information. It sounded to me like the unidentified body had, was somebody that had kind of gone off to live off the grid or whatever, right? Yeah. And it fit sort of. So that was just me throwing that out there. But um, I hope he, uh, I hope whatever happened to him, uh, you know, he found some peace. Yeah, I so I briefly did like a, a newspaper archive looking for him, and there wasn't there wasn't much to what's going on here at all. And I saw that there's another person with the same name who was an athlete a few years earlier in Nebraska, and that was that was really it. That's that's all I had on him. I didn't I didn't do a lot of uh, extra hunting. Uh, I did not find that name in a newspaper after 1983. But I hope that, you know, some way, shape, or form, his case could be closed and he could also be home for the holidays. hope that people enjoy, like, what we're doing uh, with our Home for the Holidays series. We have several more cases that we're going to be covering here. Uh, I guess we're going to have 25 days of Christmas this year, huh? Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the Crime XS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day 
when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? 
Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeAccess at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeAccess at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. 
if you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.